Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Animation Industry Podcast. My name is Terry and last week I made an announcement that I launched some merch, but just today MGM Studios decided to file a copyright claim against my logo that I created for some reason. I have no idea how this happened, uh, but uh, there's no more merch right now for the time being until I figure this out. This week, I'm chatting with Andrew Chessworth, known for his work in 2D and 3D animation, and of course, his most recent short called The Brave Locomotive, which has racked up over 7 million views on YouTube now since it launched just two months ago. In our chat, he's gonna share how he got into animation, the special environment that enabled him to hone his animation skills, how he managed his short film from start to finish, including a full breakdown of the budget and what's next for him. But first, I'm doing a giveaway to one of my lucky listeners, and that is because this episode is sponsored by Toon Boom Animation, who for over 30 years has led the global market in pre-production and 2D animation software serving clients in over 140 countries. And they are giving away a three-month license of Storyboard Pro to one of you guys. This has a value of almost $300, and to enter, simply fill out your name and your email in the form that I've provided in the description of this podcast. Now, Toon Boom Storyboard Pro is one of the leading storyboard softwares used by professional story artists, directors, and other creatives from around the world, including myself. It combines drawing, scripting, camera controls, animatic creation, sound, and other tools. You can start your free trial by visiting toonboom.com or just enter this draw to become the lucky winner of a three-month free license. I'll be drawing the winner by the end of this week, so be sure to enter as soon as possible. The link is in the description of this chat. So now without further ado, let's jump in. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Terry. Thanks for having me today. Uh, you, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> um, I've been following you for quite some time. Obviously, you came out with uh, perhaps the most... Uh, <laughs> How do I say this? The the highest quality 2D animated short film uh, that has surfaced the entire globe in a while. So I want to chat about that. But I'm, you know, you've been chatting a lot about the Brave Locomotive quite a lot. So let's let's chat a little bit about other things. Like, okay, so you graduated way back in like 2007, and you were focused on 3D animation. That's right. I started working at an agency. Uh, I just had the owner of that same agency make on this podcast a little while ago. Um, how did you get into 2D animation when you had studied 3D and you started your career in 3D animation? Like, where did this where did this 2D animation come from? Well, I was always the kid that could draw uh, growing <laughs> right. up. Like that was I, it, it all started with drawing for me, the love of Animation, I think, stemmed from love of drawing and comics and growing up on Calvin and Hobbes and Bill Pete books and Disney animation. So Toy Story came out when I was 10. I was intrigued by that. I saw the overlap between that and the video games I was playing, even like Nintendo 64 and Toy Story. I like I understood the correlation there at a young age. Uh, so drawing and 3D were kind of like parallel interests that happened during my growth timeline in the 90s and uh, into the 2000s. So when I went to college, 
Uh, Brother Bear came out my freshman year, and I think it did okay. Then Incredibles and Home on the Range came out my sophomore year. One of them did amazing, and the other one did very poorly. Uh, and so it was kind of a, a sign of the trajectory that our industry was going. And kind of like AI in our industry now, these disruptions are never clean. Like the transitions are long and they're messy. And I think the transition from 2D to CG in the mainstream was also long and messy, like a good decade or so of kind of parallel tracks. And one is kind of like getting ahead of the other a little bit more incrementally. And then there's a moment where, you know, you've got Incredibles and Home on the Range coming out the same year. And it looks, that's when it starts to look like a big disruption, right? Um, when you've got a very direct comparison like that. But for me, it was just a practical one, like why I got into CG. It felt like that's where things were going. But I realized even while I was studying CG that I just really enjoyed the tactile hand-drawn experience. But I didn't want that to come at the expense of my knowledge of a digital pipeline. So I was always curious about both and I genuinely enjoyed both. So I think coming out of school, even though I had to pick a lane as an animator to kind of imagine a, a successful career, I, I wanted to find a way to keep both an active part of my daily creative life. And so actually working for Make, the studio that you brought up, um, it was like the perfect fit for me because it was an extension of what I was doing in school, 2D and 3D. And it overlapped with Danny's interests as a studio owner. He wanted to do all kinds of different styles in live action, 2D, stop motion, CG. Um, so I was part of that early culture at Make that just wanted to kind of dabble in everything and understand everything out of genuine curiosity. So how do you, okay, so but you excel in like both areas because, you know, you know, if you look at like all the projects you've worked on, you've worked on tons of stuff for Disney in 2D and in 3D. Like, how, like how do you, <laughs> how do you keep on top of like the technological stuff you need to know with 3D? Like, I don't know if you're using Maya or Blender or whatever, 3D Max. And like hand-drawn makes sense because you don't have to understand a lot of crazy tech, but when it comes to yeah. 3D, you do. So like, how do you split your time if you're trying to develop both at the same time and you're being picked for projects on both at the same time? I think a lot of it was just, uh, I mean, you, you did kind of sum it up well. I think with 2D, there's a very low learning curve. Like if you understand the principles of animation, like I learned Harmony for working on Klaus in like maybe two hours. Like once you understand the principles of animation, you can, and well, a lot of the you software are learning has rigged a, puppets on Harmony. You are just well, those are, well, the, oh, that to be fair, those are not rigged puppets. Yeah, in class we were using Harmony for traditional just yeah, frame, yeah, yeah. frame redraw animation. They they were maybe using some like copy. Wait, paste. so you didn't? What what were you using before you were using Toon Boom? Uh, I I. <laughs> on pay i went from paper to photoshop, to photoshop oh to tv gosh. paint yeah i animated in photoshop like before how is animating I, in photoshop because just i know some people that do that and like i've tried and i just can't even wrap my head around it it's uh it's just slow mostly i mean the biggest benefit going from photoshop to tv paint was tv paint has a really great caching system and refresh rate so if you're like scrubbing all this like high resolution raster animation, the feedback is immediate. Whereas in Photoshop, if you're in a big layer comp and you've got a lot of layers, it just chugs, right? And, and you don't have the immediacy of like arrow to the next frame and start drawing. You have to like yeah. arrow to the next frame and then click on that layer. Yeah, Unless you're right. using video layers, which I don't recommend. I hate video layers because you can't retime easily and it gets messy really fast. 
Um, so so yeah, on, Photoshop so is clunky. <laughs> so was using Toon Boom a stipulation of working on Klaus then? Yeah, that was just, that was their pipeline. I think there were a couple of people who worked in TV paint, like on the side, then exported a ping sequence and put it into Harmony and then delivered that way. And then I think there were other people who worked on paper and brought it into Harmony. So like, as long as your deliverable was a Harmony file, I think you were okay, okay. but you didn't want to, like, I didn't want to create more work for myself. So I just learned the program and got comfortable with it and it was fine. Uh, just going down this thread when you were so did you apply to Klaus or that you were like uh headhunted or uh Sergio reached out to me because I think oh, he wow. was he was creating his own team and the first time he reached out to me was actually before Netflix uh, uh took over the project as a financier and distributor um and at the time I was in the middle of directing one small step for Tycho, right. or I, or I was about to like those Tycho conversations for one small step were happening. And Sergio reached out to me and I was like, I, I basically had to say like, maybe not, not yet. Cause I'm, I'm doing this film. I mean, I don't even remember what I told him, but I couldn't do it because of one small step. I worked on one small step. We finished that film. Then like towards the end of that production, Netflix took over Klaus and became their big financier and give them a release date and, all the support they needed to finish the film. And then uh, Sergio and I started talking again and there was a place for me on the film. So it just kind of worked out. I think the second time I probably reached out to him and just saw if there was still like a need and, okay. uh, and there still was. Yeah. Okay. Last question on that. Were you, uh, so you were, were you doing the rough Were you the tie downs? Were you doing the cleanup? Were you doing everything all at once and delivering it like a full shot or were you like, uh, like how was the pipeline from uh, on Klaus? Uh, they would deliver us a harmony layout file, sometimes with camera moves, you could turn the camera move on and off. So you could see how it was fitting into that, that comp. Uh, then I would do roughs and tie downs, but sometimes the tie downs, like if there was a moving hold was not fully in between and you could chart it for a cleanup artist. So for example, uh -huh. if you had like a really slow moving hold, like just, you know, resolving into a pose and it's just railroad tracking until it's all in between. You could chart that for a cleanup artist. And I would say maybe do the last part of that on fours or sixes. And then a cleanup artist might railroad track like the last, you know, three drawings or something. Gotcha. So we, okay. we could do some of that, you know, cause it was a show that had to be on twos and ones. There was no threes or fours, just twos, ones and holds. Like that was the motion language of the show. So Sometimes it was just easier and more effective for a cleanup artist to do that, like that last 5% of in-betweening. Gotcha. Okay. So backtrack, you uh, love 2D, you love 3D, you're doing both. Uh, yep. You were working at an agency where you could do both and like, you know, get your chops as a professional animator, et cetera, et cetera. You worked there for quite a while. And then you jumped over to like feature films, short films, yeah. like Disney, et cetera, et cetera. How is like, not a lot of people go from agency into feature film and not a lot of people even go from tv into to like films like disney etc like how did you manage that transition because i think you also took like a, a some time off to freelance in between was it is that right i did yeah <laughs> and really that time off was kind of to spend six months working on the brave locomotive like that opening sequence because i thought oh this 20 is the years level. ago <laughs> yeah yeah a million years ago uh I applied to Disney and Pixar, only those two, because, I mean, those were the only two studios I was excited about, like the brands that I was excited <laughs> about. No well, offense. The to biggest the studios in the world, because nothing else is exciting him. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I and at a young age, I knew that I really liked kind of doing my own thing, you know, whether it was making my own short films or, you know, having a little bit more involvement in projects like I could at make. So yeah. even when I was like 22, I kind of had this notion in my head, like if I'm going to work in feature and like only animate and that's it. I want it to be for like Disney or Pixar because otherwise I even knew then like I wouldn't stay interested. I mm. I get bored really quickly and I want to move on to new things or try new things. And that's always been a feature of my personality. And I knew like Disney and Pixar, they're the ones that excite me. So yeah. that's the the brand or the studio where I'm willing to give up this other part of my creative life. And uh so that that's how I felt as a 22 year old. It was maybe a bit arrogant or, but I didn't see it as arrogant. I saw it more as just like indifference <laughs> where I was like, I'm happy doing this. So if I have to give up this part of myself, it's going to be only for this brand or that brand. So uh, yeah, every, every two years I applied, I applied to Pixar and Disney in 2007 as a CG animator in 2009, I applied to Pixar as a CG animator and Disney as a 2D animator because of, uh, I knew they were doing Princess and the Frog and Winnie the Pooh. Those films hadn't come out yet, but I knew that they were making them. And so I kind of sent my 2D stuff in anticipation of maybe more 2D work coming back. Still didn't get into either studio, although I found out later I was a close call for Disney from somebody who was on that hiring committee. Uh, and then in 2011, I applied again to both, this time just as a CG animator to both Pixar said, no, Disney said yes, but it was a delayed. Yes. It was like six months later. And I found out it was six months later because a friend who was at the studio um, kind of bumped my, my reel to the recruiter and say, Hey, maybe take a second look at this guy. Hmm. And then they added an extra spot for me. Like they were only going to have five apprentices, but they had six. So I was like the last I was like the runt who got added in basically thanks to a friend. Uh, and so I didn't want to, I was aware of that. I didn't want to waste that opportunity. So when I got picked by Disney, I kind of gave it 150% because I, I wanted to be like the runt who deserved to be in the litter basically. Cause I knew it was sort of like a last ad. And, and so, yeah, that, that was why I basically had no life my first couple years at Disney. Cause I wanted to prove that I deserved to be there. So you spent six years applying to both Disney and Pixar, like once yeah. every two years. Or, or technically four, yeah. Okay, every four. Two. Were you, because like, you know, they get like thousands of applications. Um, yeah. Were you actively like trying to figure out how to uh, make your portfolio like stand out and like do extra things? Or were you just like working at Make and just like putting forward the work that you made at Make? Or were you using Make as an opportunity to like elevate your portfolio to work at Disney yeah, it was Pixar. it was it was a little bit of all of the above. I had some work from my 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 student film, my thesis film, Mortimer and Bracket. I think little tiny pieces of that stayed on every version of my reel. The reel that got me into Disney had Mortimer and Bracket on it, Fruitless Efforts on it. Oh really? Uh, <laughs> Palm Springs, the Golden Grammys, which was like the spec commercial we did at Make. It's like a Golden Grams parody with like three old ladies, like Golden Golden Girls meets Golden Grams. And so it was mostly make stuff and a couple of my MCAD films on the reel that actually got me in. And it's funny, like you mentioned, I took some time off to freelance in like end of 2010, beginning of 2011. That was for me to basically get a big chunk of 
the money shots on Brave Locomotive done, which was in that opening sequence, so that those could be on maybe my next demo reel ah. uh, in, in, if I didn't get into Disney that, that pastime. So I ended up getting in without needing to show any of Brave Locomotive to Disney, which actually surprised me. Um, that stuff that was, you know, at that time, more than a year old or or even older was the bulk of my reel that got me in. So it's like the right combination of shots and the right timing, maybe. But it was the only reel I sent to Disney that had Palm Springs on it. Hmm. And Clay, Clay Cadis, who was one of the heads of animation on Tangled and then the director of Angry Birds and several live action movies for Netflix, he told me it was like the Palm Springs piece on my reel that was kind of a standout. Like, oh, there's something compelling about this artist as an animator and i'm surprised you didn't include that earlier because like to me watching that well, it would make total sense to include that well the the previous time that i had applied i hadn't made it yet oh well, so, there you go never mind yeah so yeah 2007 i only had my student work 2009 it was still mostly student work and like fruitless efforts and maybe the golden grammys but so, I don't even... so you quit make is that right uh -huh. yeah, to yeah. just work by yourself on the brave locomotive with the intention of going to Disney or Pixar. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't you stay working at make? Uh, oh, well I was, I was freelancing for them. It was basically just on like diminished hours. You're like, yeah. I quit, but still pay me a little bit here and there. Well, I, cause it was kind of like, uh, <laughs> God, it makes me sound so selfish. I, I just wanted more time to do only the things that I enjoyed doing at my job and then to have more time to focus on the work I needed to generate to get noticed by a feature studio. Okay, but okay, okay, yes. Um, how do I say <laughs> this? That's like... Uh, uh, it's like I, need, I still need to pay rent, but I also need more time to make great character animation. <laughs> right, but it's abnormal for somebody to be like, uh, I don't have any leads for a future position, but I know I have enough confidence in myself and my abilities and my, and the state of like things that I'm going to quit what I'm doing to some extent and just figure things out on my own to, to like make it where I want to go. Like yeah. most people would keep working and just like hustle on the side or like wait yeah. to have something. I mean, I, it, it sounds cool when it's framed that dramatically. <laughs> But it is. It is dramatic. But, to like... but, but it, it didn't. Well, it didn't. It didn't feel dramatic to me at the time, though, because I I remember being candid with Danny. Like, feature animation is on my bucket list. I love this job, but I do kind of need to spend more time focusing on that goal. And Danny was not just my boss; he was also a friend, and I yeah. trusted him with that insight about me. And uh, so there was still room for me to help on projects where. Um, where, where I could be used effectively to help and and uh, still have time to kind of cultivate my own right. reel of I mean, character animation. It makes sense you have a unique relationship with your work as well. Yeah, I think Ty Tyson, I think Tyson, uh, your brother had that kind of relationship with Danny as well, where it was like a friendship and an employee-employer dynamic. Right. If you're yeah. listening, you don't know, my brother also worked at the same uh, yeah, yeah. studio that Andrew worked at and had the same boss, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I, I thought about other aspects of this because it's interesting in hindsight, you know, what compulsory forces make us do what we do. And I also think because I lived in Minnesota, my rent was like $550 a month. And, you know, cost of living was so low. I could 
like there there wasn't like an existential threat to like slowing things down a little bit especially as a single guy with low rent um yeah, and a yeah, and yeah. a good job like that i could also choose to pivot to as a freelancer and i was also teaching two classes a week at mcad my alma mater okay. i taught a story a storyboarding class and a 3d animation class and the impact on my time was like maybe seven or eight hours a week with teaching and then grading assignments and so forth and prepping assignments. But like just teaching two nights a week paid my rent in Minneapolis. So technically, I didn't even have to freelance during those six months that I was freelancing for Danny. I just wanted to because I didn't want to only be making right. just the money you made is still sitting in the bank. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a, I think there's a lot to the whole picture right yeah that I like, was, one of my questions was going to be like what kind of lifestyle do you have to be in to to enable this because like for instance like i live in toronto and like rent here is like toronto and vancouver are like the most expensive cities in the entire country here yeah and like my rent is not cheap <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like i'm yeah, paying two thousand dollars a month just to have like this one bedroom and so like quitting quitting a job is like a huge decision becomes a huge yeah. decision versus like I'm paying four times as much as, you know, Andrew back in the day. Okay, but interesting. Okay, so I feel like this chat is going to be all over the place. But one question that I didn't want to lose was you made some of the opening shots of the Brave Locomotive over 10 years ago, basically. That's right. Yeah. Did I you, mean, when you were coming up with the film and finishing up now, did you have to go back and clean up some of those, some of those shots from everything you learned? Um, you like, oh, I was this good already. <laughs> I just didn't want to change it. I, I liked that the film was a time capsule. And I think being away from it for so long, like materially away from it, where I hadn't really animated on it in so yeah. many years, it, it was almost like coming back and finishing somebody else's film with like a clear set of parameters. Like this is mm -hmm. what it looked like. This is how it felt. These are the easiest things to change about it retroactively, like color correction, or like, you know, value structure, like opening up an After Effects file and making the character pop a little bit more by color correcting it or like simplifying a bit of the background. Like that was easy stuff to do. Like you open it up, do it in a few minutes, but like now it looks kind of like unfinished, like looking really nice. I did more of those kinds of changes versus like completely reanimating a shot. Yes. I would sometimes go and like touch something up a little bit but I wasn't like redrawing character models or anything like that. It was like maybe fixing an in-between or or um, it, most of the time it was just color correction or removing a background detail. Uh, I re-rendered a couple of like the old 3D animation files of the train if there was like something broken or, or inconsistent about it. But again, like opening up an old Maya file, like it took longer to like figure out what I did and get that Maya file working correctly than to actually do the, the, the creative fix to it. Right. Okay. Okay. So sense. yeah, it, it was mostly just part of the, the, the discipline I wanted to impose on finishing the project was like, don't get hung up on stuff that's already done. Like just let it be done and focus on the filmmaking, which is the timing, the editing, the clarity of the flow of the story, the quality of how all the music threads it together. Cause I edited out a lot of finished music that just was either boring or kind of like repeating a story beat. And I, so there was a lot of music editing to kind of get the final composition down to what it is and make it feel like it was intended to be that way the whole time, you know? <laughs> Got you. That makes sense. Okay. Getting back on the Disney thread. So you working yeah. at Disney, working on yeah. some big films and, and et cetera, et cetera. 
how did it feel to be like at the place that's like coveted in your mind for so long that got you started with Incredibles and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how did it feel working, working there? That I mean, that first year, it was like the culmination of a dream come true. And I enjoyed the whole five and a half years I worked there, including the stressful ups and downs of different productions and different, you know, uh, rugs that get pulled out from under you being on certain kinds of productions with story changes and whatnot. But that first year on Wreck-It Ralph, it was like the perfect first feature for me, you know, growing up as like a 90s kid playing the Nintendo games and the Donkey Kong rare games. And then Wreck-It Ralph is like a love letter to all of that and the, the 80s arcade stuff too. But it just felt like that movie was tailor-made to be like my first movie because I just knew every reference and every thing that it was homaging and paying tribute to and doing like classic Disney, even like the fact that it had a character who's based on the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland, like the villain King Candy. It's like that late 40s, early 50s style of animation that I just love. You can tell I love it based on my short film. But even there's a character like that in it too, mixed in with all this Nintendo um homage stuff and so working on working on Wreck-It Ralph for me was like a dream project like yeah. I was 26 I was even like the perfect age I was in like my mid-20s you know old enough to kind of be working and understanding that 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 climate but but young enough to still be very connected to that stuff from my childhood that the movie was inspired by so yeah it was just Wreck-It Ralph for me was like a dream like I remember just I didn't, it was like a dream I didn't want to end. I just wanted my whole life to be being new at Disney and working on that movie because it felt so good. And then right after that was Frozen. And that was like a different kind of dream because it felt like working on Aladdin or The Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast or the musicals from my childhood. But using the same tools I used to make like my dumb CG thesis film. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm animating in the graph editor like it's Mortimer and Bracket, but it's like a Disney princess like that was it was wild. So working on Frozen was a lot of fun, too. And um, the environment making Frozen was it was a really special moment in time because like Tangled had come out and the princess and the frog had come out. So there was this feeling of like an upswell in Disney, like the brand was getting rejuvenated again. But we weren't like so big that it didn't have some of that like small town mom pop flavor in the animation department. Like it felt lower stakes. Like once frozen made like a billion dollars and became this impenetrable franchise, it changed the dynamic. Even while I was working there, we felt the shift and like, Oh, we're like, we're like becoming the big institution again. Like we were like the brand was, you know, 30 years ago. Um, but like while we were making frozen, it was cool to kind of still feel that like kind of, I don't want to use the word quaint because Disney's not really a quaint brand, but it still felt like a smaller studio mindset within the animation department making this bigger thing that blew up and kind of changed the whole fabric of the brand again. So oh. yeah, like that Wreck-It Ralph frozen period for me, it's a period I'll be very nostalgic about for the rest of my life because it was such a, like a cool little moment as the brand was starting to grow again. And we had a little bit more room to be playful. And like, I remember like almost every shot I requested on Frozen to animate, I got. And it's not because I was like a great animator or anything. It was just because I think it was a smaller department. So you were more likely to get cast a shot that you liked 
if you were one of the first people to ask and and they trusted you with it. Like I remember there was a scene in one of the early screenings that was mostly storyboards where Christoph says to Anna, Anna, sorry. <laughs> he says to Anna, wait, you got engaged to somebody you just met that day? And she's like, yes, pay attention. Like that just made me laugh in the screening. And so right after I just emailed my coordinator and was like, hey, can I animate that shot? And then like, <laughs> next thing I know, it's in my my casting queue. And I was like, wow. oh, cool. Yeah. How, do, so how it, does it feel like, I haven't talked to anybody that's worked on Frozen, which is like, it is impenetrable still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're. it's never going to go away. It's here Like it's forever. basically <laughs> changed. Uh, it's had an effect on the entire globe at this point like everybody knows about this across the world yeah uh how does it feel like when you're like even now like walking into a store and like seeing like we just got over the christmas holidays like i don't know seeing all the advent calendars with like anna and elsa on it or whatever like do you still feel like this is a part of like what you've created or is it more like hey i worked on the thing and it's whatever. yeah like like yes and no i mean there's now there's more frozen content that i haven't worked on than have you know, like I worked on the original Frozen. I did like a minute and a half of footage on it. And then I worked on the Olaf uh, Christmas special, Olaf's Frozen Adventure, I think it's called. And I did like, I don't know, like maybe 45 seconds of footage on that. And that's it. That's my contribution to the entire Frozen pantheon. <laughs> Frozen 2, I didn't work on. Frozen Fever, I didn't work on. There's two more movies coming out that I saw they announced. I probably won't work on those if I'm on the, if I'm still on the trajectory that I'm on now. Um but I, I associate with those characters, yeah. but when I see the, the, the merchandise or like the phenomenon, that all came like after my participation in it pretty much ended. Like when okay. I think of Frozen, I think of the animators who I was working next to, the scenes I was, you know, talking to people about, the notes I got in dailies, the, the gag versions of shots that I animated and showed to the directors just to make them laugh that are completely not safe for work or YouTube, you know, <laughs> like there, there was a whole kind of like gag culture of, in the animation department. And we had a folder called glad it exists. Mm -hmm. And it was just gag versions of shots that people would dump in there, you know, where you'd like blend shape a character's head to look completely different. So yeah. it's the same animation, but with like a different morph target oh on it or gosh, something. That's hilarious. So th there's so, and actually at the rap party for frozen, as people were like filling in the theater, like the pre-roll was just the glad it exists folder with all the gag shots. And I don't even know if they would do that now. I think maybe it's like, <laughs> It got too big, like they have to take themselves more seriously now. Maybe they still do stuff like that. I don't know. But I, I liked that I was there at a time when we didn't take ourselves so seriously, but it was still kind of, yeah. people were paying attention, but we didn't have to take yeah, ourselves yeah, so yeah. seriously. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so then let me ask you, you know, you worked at Disney for quite a while. Why did you, why aren't you working there anymore? Like what did you leave? The project is wrapped I, up, you got different opportunities. Like why, what's preventing you from going back, I guess, or staying? Uh, I, I, I had been thinking, you know, even when I was having a great time there, like on Zootopia and Moana, which were the last two features I worked on, I was just getting like this itch to do my own stuff again. Kind of like I did at Make. I, was, I missed yeah. doing storyboarding and character design and animation and just opening up Premiere and making an edit that was funny just because I think it's funny. Like being able to kind of manipulate the actual film and not just your little performance within the film. I just missed it a lot. And I think people who worked with me at Disney 
saw me expressing that outlet in various ways with like the gag reels that I would do. <laughs> like this guy has a lot of time on his hands to make these like gag versions of the shots. There's an itch. And like he only clear... animated a minute and a half, but he could have done five minutes if he wasn't doing. Yeah, all I, I think I think anyone at Disney who might be listening to this, you probably knew that I had like a lot of itches to scratch and. I think I just really like um, working in a smaller scale, like smaller scale team, smaller scale project, you know, with, with lower stakes comes more freedom. And so did um, you do the same thing with make where you just like, I quit, I'm going to figure things out on my own. Or did you do things <laughs> differently where you're like, I'm going to look for opportunities and then leave and go towards those instead. I, I think I, had, well, at Disney, it was, a, it was, it was different than make. Cause I think at make, there was a conversation I had with Danny where I basically had to tell him, my goal is to work in feature animation because I've always wanted to do that and I can't stop thinking about it. And I want to tell you because because um, I respect you and I appreciate the investment you've made in me and I want this relationship with Make to continue, but yeah. I also need to focus on this goal. Like with Make, it was, it was very personal like that, yeah. like very, very positive and personal and kind of like smaller scale. Yeah, but At like Disney, Walt, Walt himself is, he's passed away, so you can't like go to him and say. <laughs> Mr. Disney. Mr. Disney. Mr. Disney, please forgive me for the sin I'm about to commit leaving your studio. But I, I think uh, at Disney, it was more, I don't know, it was more, how do I put it? It felt like it just happened without me having to have like an intervention or a meeting. I think I remember telling a couple of coworkers, yeah, like, I think I'm interested in working remotely as a freelancer again because I want to experience, like, I want to know what it feels like to be away from this, to see if I miss this, to see if I miss being an animator on these big features. I need to be away to know if I'm still in love with it. You know what I mean? Like, will absence make my heart grow fonder for this role as a character animator and feature? Or will I be like, oh no, this was the right decision. So when I finished up on Moana, I, I was like, this is one of the best movies I'll ever work on. This was kind of like this big, big deal movie with like Lin-Manuel Miranda, Ron, Ron Clements and John Musker, Don Hall, Chris Williams. Like it had these four amazing directors coming together to like assemble this story and put together this movie. It had this amazing music by this big up and coming songwriter. Um, the vibe of the movie was so positive. It had hand-drawn in 3D animation in it. Like you have Eric Goldberg and Mark Hen and Randy Haycock doing this beautiful tattoo animation on Maui. And it's like this perfect excuse to mix the mediums together and involve everybody. And the thing I love about Moana was not only was the movie fun and positive as a movie, but it was like a party that everyone was invited to and everyone got to like be a part of. And so as a movie, as a project, it just felt like it was so generous with what it was giving us all as an experience, uh, as animators on a big production like that. And then the movies after it, I was like aware of, but you could feel people kind of going in different directions. Like, okay, these people are going over here to do this movie. These people are going over here to do this movie. And like the big, you know, mountain of everyone coming together to climb Moana, that that was like the only movie I worked on there that felt like that. Mm. If So it felt like a moment in time. And I was like, okay, maybe this is like the right one to kind of say like, that was amazing. And now this itch that I've been thinking about for the last couple of years to like do my own thing again, maybe now's the time. So I just told a couple people casually 
I'm thinking about stepping away and freelancing and doing my own thing for a little bit to see if I miss this. Then like immediately Sergio reached out to me about Klaus and Taika reached out to me about this startup. It was like, and I think it was because one of the people I told knew about the Taiko thing that was happening. Like this startup with Chinese funding is getting into like um, uh, international co-production company model and they want to have, you know, development team here in LA and production team over in China. And they're looking for creatives to like help shape that. And so I was like invited into that before I even had to go to my boss at Disney and say, I'm thinking of leaving. You know what I mean? Wow, so that's incredible. The, the timing is the, impeccable. <laughs> the time, the timing, the timing was impeccable. And even if the Tyco thing had never happened. Like you weren't, I, you weren't like mass net, networking to like, you know, put out no. trailers and it, it was just like casual conversation, things lined up. No, it was I like, the was P like, Oh, we, we like heard about you and we want you to direct our next Oscar nominated. <laughs> and, well, they didn't even come to me as a director. They came to me as kind of like a, you've worked at a small studio before you kind of know the, mm. you know, that kind of Jack of all trades lifestyle. Uh, and so maybe you can, so the people who maybe went to school and then went straight to feature to do one part of the pipeline, you can kind of help ease them into the, the startup world because you've kind of you've done more of the end-to-end -end stuff yourself in the past before disney so the people i was closest to within the disney animation department they kind of knew that i was i was like about to take another risk and and step away and and see if i missed it try other things but those same people knew Shafu and what he was building with Tycho. And so I think word immediately got to him that Andrew is thinking of doing other things, maybe have a conversation with him. And meanwhile, Sergio, I'd never met Sergio. He just reached out to me because of my 2D work, presumably from 11 Second Club in Palm Springs, because those were really the only two that were like out there that somebody might know me for. Yeah. And like social um, media was not a, not a, well, yeah. it was, it was, but it, it was, was, it's not, you know, like but that was now. still, yeah, I mean, this was 2017, so it was like... What, and seven, I remember eight. like nobody was doing 2D at all. Like it was so hard to find anything in 2D. And then the Klaus came out and people were like, what is yeah. this? Yeah. So to answer your question of like, what was it like leaving Disney? Um, it, it was very seamless in a way, because mm -hmm. all I had to do was just kind of be honest with my friends that while I was happy at Disney, I was interested in trying other things again. Then Were you in two... a similar like work-life situation where like, you know, rent was okay and you had savings and like you, you didn't feel like, cause, cause like there's not a lot of people that would still be like, I want to go and do something on my own. And then just like, you know, even get in that <laughs> mindset. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, there was a little bit more risk involved this time with, with Disney because by that point I had a mortgage. Um, the first three years I worked at Disney, I had a I had a studio apartment in Burbank that was one thousand one hundred and eighty dollars a month, and I was walking distance from Disney, and my car was paid off. I had a cheap, you know, two thousand three Ford Taurus that I bought used for five thousand dollars many years earlier. So I had no car payment, no student loan payment, and really cheap rent for the first three years I worked at Disney. So all I did was just do max out overtime until I had enough money for a down payment on a house. Mm. And I bought a house here in Burbank in 2014. Like I spent like literally all of my money on that down payment. I might've had like 15 or 20,000 in the bank after my down payment, but I spent like most of my money just on that down payment. And 
that I still live in the house that I bought in 2014. And now if I sold this house and wanted to buy another house in Burbank, I would be losing money because the housing market's gone up so much. I would have to sell this house and then like move back to Minnesota to like be a rich man. You know what I mean? And the housing market <laughs> everywhere is, is it's, terrible. It's wild. So, but, but even like, back- it's also insane to me, like, cause, cause like as somebody who's like, you know, trying to figure out how to buy a house as well. And also like living a freelancer lifestyle, like uh, it's very scary to me to be like, okay, I have to maintain monthly payments on a mortgage. I can't be out of work for an extended period of time or like, you know, yeah. I need a plan because I got to make payments. Like it's not, it's not the same as like living in an apartment anymore. And like, yeah, yeah. You have savings and you can put that towards your future rent for like the next year or something. Yeah. You, you've given me just now a little bit more clarity about how I want to talk about my departure from Disney. Ah. So I actually wasn't going to leave until I had something lined up. I remember oh. thinking that because I had the mortgage payment, my wife and I were, you know, in early talks of like, what does marriage and a family look like for us? Like we wanted to go in that direction. We and you're like, sure. I want to quit my job. <laughs> I'm going to quit my job. Because ah. I'm just a picky boy. I just want to do what I want to do. No, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of like, I wanted to put that lifeline out there. Like I want to do other things, but I'm not going to leave this job until I know what that is. And it just so happened that Tycho and Klaus came like, within what felt like days of me communicating to friends that I was interested in Doesn't other that things. always happen? In- <laughs> yeah, it's it's easy. You just tell a friend what you yeah, want exactly. to do. Yeah, exactly. Actually, happens, this happened right? to me once before too. I quit, I quit one of my business jobs with nothing lined up. And then three days later, I had a, another offer for almost twice as much at a, at a better company. Without wow. So you, it wasn't even a poach. It was like a quit <laughs> and then a better offer just came. <laughs> it was it was literally the same. I don't even I, same situation scenario. But anyways, a coincidence. It hasn't happened since. But. I I do. The older I get, the more I do believe in these kind of like cosmic like waves in the ocean of humanity, mm. where where everyone's kind of feeling like moods at certain times. Like right? you feel like you pick up on like I'm gonna be okay if I take this risk now because like yeah I don't know how to explain it, but the, 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 for me to be okay right now. Yeah, I mean, maybe some people listening to this now are like, God, this privileged God, he's, just, a, he's never had a hard day in his life. He's never had a hard day in his life. He just sits at his desk and he animates. I, I no, I, I did feel genuine fear of what it would be like to leave Disney after such a hot moment. Like Moana was, yeah. it was such an apex moment for the studio in, in, a, in a number of ways. And to leave right after that felt, presumptuous and foolish on a lot of levels like i would intellectually did well i guess you didn't tell many people but did you ever get pushback on like hey you're making a stupid decision or like blah 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 no because i think the people who i was comfortable sharing that with saw a fuller picture like that makes sense even when you work on one of the best movies and feature it is perfectly healthy and normal to feel lonely or like there's more that you want to do, right? Like the movie makes a billion dollars, gets, you know, 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, whatever. You can still be lonely at your job or you can still feel like you have itches that you want to scratch. Like that's okay. Um, And I want to, for other people out there who might be feeling that way, like, oh, why doesn't this feel like it's enough? And it might be because you don't have the lifestyle that you want. Like it's not just about the acclaim of the work or the studio that you work at. It's also like when you wake up in the morning and go to bed at night, 
what are you doing during the day? And do all of those things fulfill you? And for me, just animating it in Maya at my desk for, you know, 90% of my waking life, it, it wasn't like the lifestyle that I wanted. Yeah. I wanted a, a lifestyle that was maybe had room for a little bit more uh, risk-taking or a little bit more creative flexibility. Um, well, even totally if it, invo- even if it involved moving and living somewhere less expensive, which I, I think in most cases it probably should involve that. If that's an itch that you want to scratch, like you want to mitigate the risk to yourself by creating the lifestyle that you want in, in a, like a, an environment that's not going to bankrupt you. Right. Yeah. And so that's why leaving make was, it was able to be a little bit more of like a forthright upfront conversation because there was very little financial risk to me in having that conversation with Danny when I did versus Disney where it's like, I'm going to put feelers out there, but I'm not going to leave until I know I'm not going to like screw myself, you know? Cause yet while I may desire a different kind of lifestyle as a creative person, it doesn't mean I should do it like tomorrow. <laughs> but well, it has the timing has to be right for anything. Like if you if you yeah. quit Moana halfway through to pursue your own things, like you wouldn't have had the same opportunities. You would have been in a weird spot. You you maybe you would have defaulted on your mortgage, and then you'd end up in a weird situation where you're taking shitty yeah. jobs just to pay the bills. You wouldn't end up. It's all about like timing, and your like you have like. I also think you have an internal compass that it's like it's like pointing you in the right direction when it, everything's yeah. kind of aligning and feeling right. I'm also wondering, you know, like you're obviously a person who has like, you know, a lot of creative voice and like conviction. Um, but like, uh, I just love this. Of right. <laughs> you're also like, you're extremely talented and you're like highly skilled in like 2d and CG. Like, how did you, how did you, uh, I guess even like to be able to get the shots that you got at Disney, for instance, like to to get the shots and ask for them is the same thing. Like not everybody's getting that. How did you, I guess, reach that level of skill while you're there? Are you constantly learning? Are you like trying to like elevate your own skill level constantly? Like how are you also, you know, pushing your your limits of your animation abilities at the same time? Uh, that's such Instead a good of- question. That's such a good question. And there's so many elements to it. I'll, I'll answer the part of it that comes to mind first. Um, like on Frozen, most of the shots I asked for were comedic and I think aligned with my own sense of humor. And if there was like a part of the movie that I wanted to work on, like, for example, Anna's song or, you know, Anna at the end when she punches Hans and he falls off the boat. It was like something where I felt like I already have a, a point of view of like how I would like to see that done because it it entertains me. And uh, uh and I'm not asking maybe out of my reach, like, okay, well, I haven't done any super deep, juicy romantic shots or, or like serious shots on Ralph or frozen. Cause I've only done like barely two movies at that point. Right. But I was asking for shots that I think I wanted to do. Cause I had a point of view on the entertainment for it. And I felt like the supervisors were comfortable giving me because it wasn't infringing on like a more experienced animators real estate. So there, there's like an intuition there that I think you can have about how you fit into the 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 acting troupe of the animation department. Yeah, that like, makes I think, sense. Like you wouldn't ask for like this crazy action scene when you've never done action before. Like it just, you, yeah. You just yeah, I was, I, I, I think I instinctively was asking for stuff that other people maybe already saw fitting into my wheelhouse, but I was kind of helping, helping like narrow that target for them. So, but are bit. you also like, 
you know, there's the trope of like uh, doing life drawing every day and like, et cetera. So like you also doing all that to like really get better at posing and stuff or were you just like learning and working on the job? Uh, I was mostly drawing on my own on the side. I was doing a little bit of stuff on the side to kind of stay handy with drawing. My first year at Disney, I went to life drawing a lot. Then the longer I was there, the less I went because I just got lazy and fell into a routine. And I wish I had gone more because those classes they offer are excellent. And it's a it's a real privilege to have them available as an employee. So I regret not going more during my later years working there. But um, yeah, you just try to stay curious and observant with with how people move and behave and shooting live reference. You know, the old Disney guys used to say it was a crutch. Don't lean on it. You're just rotoscoping, you know, understand it. Don't just copy it. That's all, you know, a fair point of view. But I actually got really good at just interpreting reference because when you're looking at your body moving all the time or somebody else's body moving if you're shooting reference of somebody else you just intuit a lot of things through repetition of observation and so live reference i think made me a much better animator just okay. just through repetition of yeah fair, fair, fair. okay I, I feel like we should talk about the brave look at some point old <laughs> <laughs> news but maybe maybe just like wrap up like for me quickly like <laughs> you know since disney since um uh like taiko and and klaus and etc like what what is the, you mentioned previously you're on a different career trajectory now what is that career trajectory like are you actively looking for because you're also at barking dog right now barking dog i think it's called oh uh, uh flying dark yeah fly yeah well flying flying bark is a partner flying studio bark, with... barking dog i don't know <laughs> flying flying bark is a partner studio with netflix uh that they're working with to make uh, an animated stranger things show and that's that's basically right. all i'm allowed to say about it but right. i have a I similar the news about that actually yeah so, I but like a... okay but what is the tra career trajectory you're on because obviously you have like you know your own creative projects where you're uh you know highly acclaimed for um you are a director you have 2d animation you have 3d animation like what are you what are you trying to do now that you've come out of all of your disney and agency training the the simple answer is i want to keep making films without losing money <laughs> like i want to i want to be uh, I mean, like uh, films like your own films, films like my own films or whether so are it's you treating work as like this is paying my bills to for for me to buy time for my next film. It's it's basically work for me now is uh, supporting my family, getting better at my craft so that I stay fresh and stay relevant uh, in whatever team I'm working with. And uh, after those two needs are met, then how does making my own film fit into this and what's the strategy there to make it financially viable, whether it's crowdfunding or support from a small studio that shares my vision, but uh, making a $100 million feature, it doesn't really cross my mind as like a, I'm going to do that because the people I look up to like the Coen brothers or Wes Anderson they do not aspire to make the $100 million feature because with more money comes more accountability and less freedom, right? And Joel Cohen, um, the Cohen brothers are my favorite filmmakers, by the way. I'll just put that out there for anyone who's curious. He said something, I think, during the promotion of one of their most recent movies that really stuck with me. And he said, I don't want to make 
a $100 million movie. I have no interest in it because I don't want to threaten a studio's bottom line. As soon as you're making a movie that threatens a studio's bottom line, your movie becomes a liability and therefore a lot of voices are invited in right. to, to kind of own that movie and steer it in get a rid of the direction. risk and like make sure it yeah. becomes more of a producing producer voice than a creative directing voice. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if I want to put all my cards on the table, why not? Right. That's why I'm here. So who do you, who do you look at right now and say like, this person is like where I want to be. Like they're making the less than a hundred million dollar movie, but they're still making really creative, like impactful stuff. Uh, in terms of like the, the financial model of it, I would say like Wes Anderson for uh fantastic Mr. Fox or Isle of Dogs okay. or maybe Charlie Kaufman for Anomalisa. Like, I, I think like that, so you just That's, listed three stop motion movies. <laughs> I did. But I, well, I think in the, in the digital age, as in like, you know, all digital pipeline, like Klaus, Klaus was a really great movie to be a part of because it showed how $35 million can look like $150 million. Right. But is there so, also like, is there also a point where it's like a lot of people are stretched thin to make this film happen? Like, yes, yes, absolutely. And I think, uh, I think that's the, the the reservation I have about feature in general. Feature in terms of like, if you're doing a lower budget animated feature, you are probably asking more of animators than you should to kind of meet those budget expectations. Yeah. And I have real reservations about that, you know, because I, I don't, I'm not somebody who thinks my vision for a feature film is worth people doing that. <laughs> You know what I mean? Right, like working like I, I would, late I would hours advocate, for less money, like yeah, I would stress say, and et cetera to make your thing. Yeah, I, I have a, a I have a really complicated relationship with the animation industry for this exact reason. I Everybody think, does. Yeah, but but I, I think it's worth it's always worth talking about because people complain about, you know, we need more raises, we need more this or that. And those are the things that should be given to people on these big studio franchise films because that's sort of like why those films are made that way. They're made very conservatively on a creative level so that they can satisfy very real financial concerns for the thousands of people that work on them, right? Yeah. And it's it's a real conundrum. Like the movies have to be a certain way to to kind of feed the beast. Yeah. Right. But then if you want to make a movie that's a little smaller and not designed to feed the beast, like, are you doing well by your employees? Are you doing well by the massive amounts of people you need to make a 90 minute film for a streaming service or uh, wherever, wherever the smaller film is going to end up? The, the feature animation industry in general is very extreme. And so if you if you want to know like what what is my dream like where do I want to see the feature animation industry go I want to see the mid budget film that doesn't you know demand ghosted hours of its employees basically is that even possible maybe it's not it might not be and if it's not then that's fine I'm I'm I mean, happy I, making I, short films It's interesting <laughs> you say that because I kind of see like the 80s not like I guess early 90s is like the golden age of like mid-budget films doing very well like there's yeah some, like it was like a testing ground for like all these concepts and like fantasy and like science fiction and horror and like everything and everybody was making stuff and there are a lot of hit there's a lot of misses too 
Yeah. Right now, I feel like all the major studios are coming up with like one big thing every so often. And it's like, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's here, less here. interesting and it doesn't hit as hard. It still makes the money. And yeah. it's like, it's, it's even the, even the major networks like Netflix and Cartoon Network and whatever, blah, 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 blah are, are investing less money into a uh, greater amount of projects. They're kind of honing in our, their bread and butter. Yeah. To feed the beast, which totally makes sense. But okay, so like, I have so many questions around your recent film and how like the modeling of financial modeling you did there and like what you see in the future. But just to like wrap up this conversation about like what you're, you're taking on projects right now to basically uh, financially support you and your family while honing your craft. Um, my last question maybe on this thread is, you know, you've worked on so many things. Your credits are like, the best credits somebody could ask for as a as an animator, basically, right? Like, you know, oh, work, commercial work, Disney work, uh, Oscar nominated director, like uh, come out with your own feature, uh, not feature, your own short film that like makes millions and millions of views and is like headlines everywhere. Are you super in demand for like animated projects or are you still finding it's kind of like, uh, like the stuff that you want that keeps you interested is still hard to get? I, I, I get a couple offers a year that are genuinely interesting while I'm working on something that I plan on staying on for a long so you, time. So you've reached like a, you've reached, you've like reached past the point where like people are, I guess, actively coming to you with pretty interesting offers that you don't have to like. I, 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 I would say I get, I get offers to be a CG animator on a feature film, just like I was at Disney several times a year from studios that I would love to work at. Um, if That's I great. like, so, and, and I'll just leave it at that. So I'm not singling was anybody there a, out. Was there a point in your career where this started to happen? Was it when you were at Disney? Was it like, it was as, almost as soon as I was at Disney, like as soon as I was at Disney, like during Wreck-It Ralph, I don't even know how this person knew I was at Disney, but a recruiter at another studio sent me a poach offer to supervise on another film. And I it was like, binoculars looking in the, the window. Yeah. I don't know how people know this stuff or even, I, I feel like I was like, Part of a carpet bomb recruiting offer for like a supervisor poach from Disney, but I had never supervised on a feature. Huh. I actually still have never supervised on a feature. I've only been like a, a just a regular animator on every feature I've ever worked on. Uh, in leadership, I've only been in leadership on like smaller projects, whether it was a commercial or a short special project, whatever. But in feature, I've only ever just animated and taken orders and you know had fun. Uh, so to get supervisor poach offers that early in my future career was weird, but I think some of that had to do with the cachet of the Disney brand and, and some of it had to do with just maybe the needs of the project that they were poaching for. But, okay. but yeah, uh, even just the other day, I got a really exciting offer to animate in CG, uh, for a studio that's doing a project that sounds super interesting and exciting. And I was like, I want to say yes to it, but it would pay less than my current job. And I would have maybe less of a voice than my current job. Wow, so I think, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, well, I'm interested in having a voice and, yeah. and being, cause I, I like engagement, creative engagement where the problem solving is not just here's the brief now animate it well and polish it nice. So it looks great on the big screen. I, I like kind of talking about the potential direction a scene could go or 
you know, like I don't have to be the director to be creatively satisfied on a project. I know that about myself. Like when I've been a character design lead or an animation lead on television shows or smaller projects, I've gotten immense satisfaction out of just being in the conversation with the people who have the final say. So I think I just enjoy that discourse, like helping find the direction, like it's it, talking about creative lifestyle, waking up in the morning and going to bed at night. Like, what do you do in between with the time that you have? I like playing in the sandbox with others and kind of influencing the direction a project can go. Makes total sense. Okay. Thank you for <laughs> Thank you for answering all my questions. Yeah. So brave. Okay. So maybe let's start on the financial things of brave loco locomotive, 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 brave locomotive, locomotive. Yeah. The brave train. <laughs> so you started the this way the back. The happy train. <laughs> the happy, the happy, the train that does something. <laughs> the persisting chugger. I don't know. Um, so you started on this like almost uh, like what, 15 years ago or something, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, and you also just said that you want to work in the future on creative projects that are financially viable in a yeah in a good way for everybody that works on them so yes. like what you know how did you <laughs> i'm just gonna ask everything at once so just let you talk <laughs> you know obviously there's a very high quality standard of brave locomotive and it's yep. it's not like one minute it's like you know it's a couple minutes long there's there's like actual like uh what are they called the An andrew sisters or whatever like singing type of people there's there's voice artists there's singers there's uh, amazing music. There's, you know, there's, you said there's a whole CG comp to 2D. There's multiple artists or, you know, this is, it's a huge production over many years. <laughs> um, like it's completely self-funded. Like what, where do you even start where you're like, okay, I have this idea and it's going to like, I don't know, I'm just speculating. It's going to cost a hundred thousand dollars. Like, is that like, did it start like that where you budgeted everything up from the beginning? Or are you just kind of like, let it go and then told people and people got on board and got interested and people did work for free and like you did all your work for free and it just happened like what what how did this how did this come together when, when it started in 2008 when i started thinking about it i i had done a film at, at mate called fruitless efforts with my friend aaron quist who came up with that and was my co-director on it and i was like the director of execution <laughs> like making sure that we could fulfill the vision that he so brilliantly delivered in the boards. And that film gave me the confidence of like, okay, I know how to like put together a film, like outside of just my thesis film, I know how to like put together a film with collaborators. And so that kind of gave me the confidence to, to kind of just jump in on something with, with locomotive. I knew that the money, the money was mostly going to have to be aimed at the music, because that was the thing I couldn't just do myself. Everything music else is so expensive. Everything given enough time, I could have done myself, but music was like, I have to spend my own money on that. And in 2009, I did. Once I met the composer, Tom Hamilton, and we broke down how we could accomplish this, we worked out uh, an arrangement that was agreeable for him and agreeable for me, where there was a composing fee. Uh, and then there was the the fee to rent out the studio and pay the performers for their time. He had to find non-union performers who were comfortable with like a one-time performance offer. Um, and so 
my eternal thanks to all of the musicians who participated in that. Cause I know he asked some people who said no, because you know, it infringed on their union, yeah, um, makes sense. their union terms, which makes total sense. And, and I respect them for it. And so, yeah, it, it was all said and done. I think I spent about 20 to $25,000 back in 2009, just on music out of pocket, which was, insane like i honestly can't believe i did that and the only reason i did it was because my rent was so cheap and my salary at make was very comfortable for somebody right out of school like i made i made a lot of money for somebody right out of school so to spend you know less than a third of my annual salary on the music for that film was it was something i was just stupidly confident in doing because i was like of course i'm gonna finish this film why wouldn't i finish it i decided i'm gonna do it so <laughs> so you already had like the story you already had the film storyboarded out and everything because in order to compose uh for something it's a it's a musical essentially yeah it's, it's a musical that finished so you had the whole thing finished like back in 2009 then we had a yeah we had an outline a written outline and we knew kind of like what the the song cues were going to be and like what the start and end storytelling needs of each cue was going to be. I mean, it's a very simple story. It's kind of the little engine that could meets Paul Bunyan where you've got the <laughs> engine. The, the, Paul Bunyan, but yeah. yeah the, it's like, it's the little engine <laughs> overcoming, you know, a big challenge mixed with that kind of age old story of obsolescence in the American scene, yeah. you know, whether it's like the, the train replacing the horse or like, you know, the the steam locomotive re replacing the skyscraper sized lumberjack. <laughs> it, that, that story of obsolescence is like kind of a, a signature of the American story. And so I wanted to I, I wanted to do like this very simple, very iconic, great American cartoon where everything about it kind of feels like that classic American signature, whether it's yeah. the way American animation felt in the golden age or the way American history felt at the turn of the century, the railroads and the old West, which are both just icons of the American scene. I mean, everything about it was intentionally designed to be, as I said, like the great American cartoon. And so that was the, um, the mindset behind it. Gotcha. So the story, the storytelling framework came very quickly. I mean, the story, on paper as in like the written word came together within like maybe two weeks there was like uh there was like an outline then a longer draft and then i simplified the longer draft back down again that was the template for some early conversations about music what the five or six song cues would be and what they meant in the greater arc of the story and then uh that there would be the, the, the tr female trio at the beginning and end of the film the railroad baron would be kind of a soloist in the vein of like uh, Dennis Day singing Johnny Appleseed. If you ever saw Johnny Appleseed in Melody Time, he sings the narration, but he also sings like through the, the mouths of the characters from time to time. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's kind of like seamless. So I wanted that Johnny Appleseed flavor for that. Uh, and then the Samson sequence is like, uh, like a more aggressive kind of jazz club version of the, the Andrew sisters. And then I always wanted the bridge sequence to be kind of this more improvisational like i don't know chaotic jazz uh because it was going to be sort of this harrowing action scene so that was always going to come later so that was the one sequence that was scored in post 
because I wanted that one to feel chaotic and frenetic and like, like the instruments are all kind of tripping over each other to score the music because the action on screen is, is collapsing. So you had um, a very clear vision of exactly what you wanted. From I, I did. I think it's because it's also pastiche, like the Palm Springs short. I wrote that in a day. And even though it's only one minute, it felt like, like the words just came out of me because the assignment was so clear. Locomotive was the same way. And I think anytime you're doing pastiche, like I'm pastiching the genre of film noir. I'm pastiching the genre of like the classic Disney American yeah. tall tale. It almost writes itself, I guess, but it kind, a good writer. I, it it kind of does. <laughs> uh, and then you, and then you edit and then you edit. But let me ask you, okay. So you, you had like a, you had it. It sounds like you kind of had it all together from the start, but to spend $25,000 of your own out-of-pocket money mm -hmm. with uh, no, no idea gear. where this would end up and that it would take you 15 years. Like, did you always have a, a vision for what you saw as success with this? Were you like, this is going to be the thing that gets me noticed? Or like, this is going to be my direct de directorial debut? Or like, this is going to be a passion project? Or like, like $25,000 is, is like... You could have, well, you could have bought a new car back then. <laughs> yeah, I didn't need one though, because my car was so cheap. Because you didn't need one, because you walked to work and the warrant was a little bit Well, it's funny you say that, because I, I justified it that way. I think I, I don't even remember if I said it in such stark terms to my parents, but yeah, it was like, like I, what are you doing with it? <laughs> this kid, he went to college, he learned the wrong things. <laughs> yeah, he just learned how to spend money on things he's never going to finish. But I guess my question is just like, you know, what, what, what was compelling you to invest so strongly in it like did you have a sense of what it was would be or like yeah it was it was all of the above uh it was a it was a bucket list project like it was the kind of animation i loved it was the kind of sensibility and tone that made me fall in love with animation versus like live action i think that kind of 40s disney uh larger than life um, caricatured sensibility where music and picture are almost like joined at the hip. I just loved that. And I didn't see it in the marketplace. And I had a vision for doing it at a level that hadn't been seen in a long time because the tools, like I even knew back in 2008 that the digital tools for 2D were not being exploited, right? Because CG had kind of taken over so completely because of like the Pixar films and the DreamWorks films, it yeah. it kind of extinguished the flame of potential in the 2D independent marketplace. And even back in 2008, I remember thinking like, you can just draw this in Photoshop and comp it in After Effects. You're Nobody done. Doing this. <laughs> no, nobody's doing this. Like yeah. it's so, I mean, other than the time it takes to draw, which is considerable, like nobody is taking advantage of how efficient 2D is now. Like at, you can do Disney, like 40s Disney animation. And the only expense is the time of the artist because. Well, the, and you have to be extremely skilled in, in animation in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I just assumed there were like plenty of skilled people who would understand. And, no, that and it totally you, makes sense. It's like the cost of entry for 2D animation is very, very low. When it's it's extremely to CG. Yeah, I mean, I think I did with a hand like I don't know, 
10 or 20 people on Brave Locomotive, what would have taken Disney 100 people and a lot more money back in 1947. Right. So right. Like, I think to, that would that yeah. would that, that was also a big goal of the exercise, like not to prove that it can be done so cheaply, but that the real cost of this, the real value of this is people's time and who who kind of have a the ability to execute this craft. Totally. And so that was that was something that was on my mind even back in 2008 during the height of the CG revolution. Cause I really believed in 2d and I believed in its place in the market, not just in terms of like the puppet harmony television stuff. Oh, totally. There's so many but, people yearning for, for like old school Disney animation. Yeah, and, and even if you look at the comments on your video, that's basically everybody's saying, I love animation. I love blah, blah, blah. Like, well, I, the, the next film I want to do independently is going to be either super low budget 3d animation where same mindset like with one small step we basically did what almost amounts to viewport animation with like after effects compositing right, right, right. right? Yeah. like you could make one small step almost as it appears with just like viewport animation tools if you had the right models the right texturing the right backgrounds like it, it comes down to like the art like one small step is a film that is very 2D in its approach, despite using 3D characters to execute. And so whether I'm doing locomotive or one small step and hand-drawn or 3D character animation, I, I'm very passionate about like low budget animation that looks really expensive because the main value is the time of the people who are working on it. And I think that's, it's the way that the Coen brothers operate in live action, you know, like, yeah. like no country for old men or serious man. I think, no Country was like 25 million. Serious Man was like 9 million. That kind of fits into the same model as like uh, Isle of Dogs or Anomalisa, like similar price points relative to those movies. And the value is like the the directing or like yeah. the acting or just like the, the conceptual image on screen. Like Isle of Dogs is a gorgeous movie. And uh, Triplets of Belleville, that's one that I've been meaning to bring up and I keep forgetting about. Like that was like a $20, $20 million movie and it yeah. looks better than a lot of Disney's movies from 50 years ago, you know? Right, right, right. Like pound for pound, it looks better than a lot of those movies. Different different art style and different tone, but like the, the quality of like execution on screen is like probably beyond Disney films that cost a lot more to make from a long time ago. So I, there I think... is a market for these types of movies. And I feel like uh, the, the market is much better to be a part of in Europe because there's so many government grants for these yeah. types of things. Unfortunately, in the States, you don't have, you don't have much. No, and the, 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 state, the States. Grants. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned 10 people worked on the Brave Locomotive over. It, it was it was more than that. But yeah, I, I a thousand of... people worked on the Brave Locomotive <laughs> over the course of 17 years. But I'm, I'm just saying, like, you know, you invested right up front 25 grand was the rest yeah. of, you know, you have 10, 10 plus animators and compositors, et cetera. You have people doing hand drawn animation at a very high level, which takes a lot of time. Yeah. Um, how are you paying? everybody was it still like from your savings like like did you so like I, how, I did, did, how did you build an income model as like hey i want to make this movie because there's so many like i want to make a movie other people want to make a movie and just like the the like financial burden of taking something on when you when you haven't even started it's like well where do i even start where do i get like 50 i don't know how much your movie costs but like fifty thousand yeah. dollars let yeah. me so i spent uh twenty five thousand 
you know, uh, 14 years ago on the music. I spent another, I don't know, like 10 or 12 on the music uh, in the, in the post process after I started the Patreon. Then I spent probably about 30 or 40,000 on the art, like backgrounds, character animation that I didn't do myself. Uh, I rounded the overall budget on paper to about like $75,000 in terms of like actual money spent. In the last three years, three and a half years, I've made about 37, 38,000 on Patreon. Uh, And then on YouTube in the first two months, it's made $10,000 in AdSense revenue from, you know, AdSense revenue is not that much. It's like a little over a dollar per thousand views, which is great if you're in like a high volume business of just like videos of yourself talking for 40 minutes and you post every other week. It's great for that. But if you're doing a high quality, like feature level production, it's, it's not, it's not comparable. Like it, like that's not where the, the, the income is, is going to come from. So, 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 and you're not considering your own time spent on this either. Like, no, I'm just talking about what you've paid other people. What what I paid other people. So, so $75,000 has gone to other people to contribute to. Yeah, me. but but more than half of that, more than half of it came from Patreon. And then I, I count the YouTube income as like an offset to the budget as well, because it's part of the life of that film. So out of pocket, you could almost say like what I spent back in 2009 on the music is still the the net loss, you know? Yeah, 25K. Yeah. But you're also, I'm assuming you're paying, like the YouTube ad revenue came after the fact. So you would have had to pay those people up front, I guess, too. Yeah, but well, Patreon, like that was the most break-even period of production where yeah. what I was what I was making each month on Patreon, I would only spend about that much in a relative amount of time. Now, if some people were available in a certain window and I didn't want to miss that window, I would I would take advantage of that. And then maybe the month after that would be a slower month on Patreon gotcha. as I kind of like recoup those costs. Cause and you, you had like a roster of artists that you were, cause just your connections that you were interested in working with. And you're like, Hey, yeah. I want you to work on this film. Like what's your rate and what can you do basically? Yeah. Yep. And then exactly. So, the other question is like, how did you get your Patreon subscribers when you didn't have the film out? Were you like, uh, like, I advertised on Facebook and um, Instagram. I think that I had a Patreon, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I made an announcement that I had a Patreon to support the completion of the film to finance background artists, animators, and musicians. So I was like really upfront about what I was paying for and like why <laughs> it made sense to do it that way instead of me just animating it on myself and continuing to spend out of pocket finishing the music. Uh, and and people were on board and very supportive. And the reason I went with Patreon over Kickstarter was because I had reached out to uh, my friend Vivian Medrano, who did Hell of a Boss and Hasbun Hotel. She's been like one of the most successful independent animators ever. And I asked her like, you know, would you do Kickstarter or Patreon? And she's like, well, if this is more of like a boutique project and it's not meant to like build a franchise or an IP or something like that, maybe work at a pace that's comfortable for you. Cause if you do Kickstarter or Indiegogo, there's like expectations with like merchandise and yeah. you, you become basically like a, like an online store instead of a filmmaker in some ways, unless you have a producer doing that for you. I wanted to produce the film myself. So I didn't have somebody else who I felt like financially obligated to 
So I could, I could organize the film myself on my own terms and not feel obligated to a producer financially. Makes sense. And that, Makes sense. Yeah. And um, so uh, Patreon was the way to go because it was like, I could monetize visibility into the process over swag. And then however much I was bringing in is what I could spend on the film. So if I made like a thousand dollars in one month on Patreon, I'm like, okay, that's five backgrounds. I'll have five backgrounds done this month. Did it was, you ever reach a point where you were like, if people don't support this, I'm just going to go and cough up 75K myself or the project <laughs> is just not going to happen? No, I think it was just going to be something that was just slow burning on the side. Because there were, even when the Patreon was really active, there were there was like a month here or there where like I personally did almost nothing on the film except support the Patreon, like gotcha. advertise it, make sure people knew about it, knew it, do, doing the posts to show what they were supporting. But then maybe I had three background artists and two animators like busy on shots that month. And so th that was like the Patreon, like doing its work, you know, and then there were other months where, you know, the finances were behind what the cost was and you know, I would have to like recoup some of that myself. And then, yeah. So it, it wasn't like a perfect, you know, yeah, $1,000 yeah. in $1,000 out every month, but overall the grand scheme of it was about break even. And so that's why, that's why it took three years, two and a half, three years from 2020 to 2023 to finish. Cause that was like the, the pace that the income could support for the additional help. Makes total sense. Um, I don't want to take up all your time. <laughs> so maybe like one last question from me. Yeah. That we've talked about so much. You so going forward, you want to make more things like the Brave Locomotive, essentially. Yeah, I, I think the Brave Locomotive was on a technical level the most ambitious independent project I'll ever do at that scale, right? right. Like if a small studio wanted to partner with me and say, we hey, the Brave Locomotive was a really cool final look, how much does that really cost? Wink, wink. I would, yeah. I mean, how much is it really like, okay, if I'm being paid for exactly what I did on that, now it's a $2 million film, right? Yeah. Yeah. With no notes and me just executing exactly like the Brave Locomotive with no notes is probably about $2 million. The Brave Locomotive with studio overhead and notes, $4 million. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. yeah. You, you instantly blew up your film to an expensive budget because now executives are getting paid and giving notes on it. So, I mean, most of the budget on these films comes from the higher end, you know, leadership blowing up and rejiggering the film and paying themselves to do so. Right. That's why movies are expensive. It's not because of the animators salaries. It's because like now that I've made a film myself, produced it and seen exactly where the F all this money goes, I'm like, Oh my God, I know why these awful studio films cost so much. And it's exactly why you think it is. It's not well, the artist. We, we knew that all along. But I guess my yeah. question is like, <laughs> how are you going to build this financial model for doing these things in the future? Because right now you said you're working to financially support yourself and your family and on your craft, but you want to take breaks to create more less than... Well, I might not be able to take... I might not be able to take breaks. I mean, unless somebody hires me full time to make a film for them at a salary competitive with my studio job. Got you. Got you. Like, got you. so it's, it's either you continue to work, you know, for the studios and, and provide a valuable service or somebody wants you to provide that service to them and they've valued it accordingly to, to redirect your time. Right. But, so, but I mean, I like, do, 
with uh -huh. your future projects, how do you envision them getting made? Oh, well, I'm still, I'm considering Patreon again to, okay. to, to finance um, something that I can do more myself than the Brave Locomotive. Like Brave Locomotive had such a high production value to it. Even just like coloring it, ink and paint backgrounds, like the production value was so high that you necessitate several other people to help you and, and valuing their time accordingly. The next thing I do is I want to do full animation, like where, you know, it's in between and, and polished very nicely, but a production design style that's a little bit simpler so that I can do more of it myself to justify gotcha. using Patreon to either pay for sound or music or additional help that's not so out of scope. So Brave Locomotive was really cool for teaching me the real value of that kind of scope, right? And like why something like that should cost $2 million or more if it's made by a studio, right? Like I know why it should cost that much, right? Even though I, I didn't spend that much on it, like that's the value of the time that was spent on it at least. And so, yeah, like knowing that, like how do you do something that costs less but is still nice to look at? Like that's what I'm trying to discover for my next project. So so if I get this right, you're still looking for like uh, outside funding to create smaller scale but still... Uh, beautifully animated and looking projects that you can handle more yourself. So yeah. you're not looking, you're not looking to like build like a small studio that creates like independent, like short films. Like no. you're, you're just like, I want to, okay. Okay. That's, that's great. Just more yeah. short films that are. Uh, well, I, I think another thing I learned producing the film myself is I don't want to be a studio executive. Like I don't want to be, a guy who owns a small studio and has uh, an employee roster and has to feed the beast and be accountable for everyone's 401k. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. I'm interested in being an independent filmmaker or providing a filmmaking service to a studio. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh... I, I think it's just, it's just knowing yourself, right? Like my, my waking up and going to sleep in the, in between, I don't want to be a studio executive. <laughs> totally, totally makes sense. Well, I, I said that would be my last question, so I better, I better hold myself to that. <laughs> Is there anything that you still wanted to talk about that we uh, we didn't cover in, in this chat? <laughs> um, I, For anyone who's like, if I want to do something like the Brave Locomotive, what should I do? My immediate answer is don't do it because a majority of people will listen to me and then the ones who don't listen to me will probably prove me wrong and you know, be amazing. So I, I think it's good to kind of, I don't know, it, it's good to kind of know your limits and listen to your passion and not overextend yourself. And for me, like making the Brave Locomotive was not about like, ah, oh, if I just finished this film, I'm going to get my dream feature film project. It was never, that was never the mindset. It was more we only get so many shots in life to make something that we're really excited about because most of the time we have to work or provide a service for somebody else. So what do we want to leave behind? This was a film I wanted to leave behind as sort of a mark. Like this was something I, I loved and I really wanted to do and be able to say that I did. And that's what it meant to me. Um, and it, it's a demonstration of you know, technical ability and, and all that sort of thing too. But for me, it was just a love letter to the reason I wanted to be an animator. And I would say if you're ever going to bite off something as ambitious or as foolish as my short was, make sure it's something you really 
deeply care about that means a lot to you and that you're always going to have fun working on because even during my lowest points on that film it was a sensibility it was a flavor of ice cream that i always enjoyed eating and right. so it's kind of like you your your passion project should also be in some ways your comfort food so that it sustains you when you're struggling or you know losing faith in it i mean that that 100 percent makes sense uh, and like yeah uh ice cream that you want to keep eating <laughs> yeah it, it is i mean i i've said it to others too and it's not it's not incorrect like there are days when i actually miss working on it which sounds so masochistic and and bizarre but it, it, but it's that. it's it's almost like phantom limb syndrome where you're like wait i need to be oh wait no i don't need to be working on it it's a weird feeling uh and and i'm trying to give myself enough time to decompress from that feeling where i don't have like phantom project syndrome anymore <laughs> um but i'm i'm juggling like at least five other ideas for short films I want to make and how I want to make them. The one I'm, the two that I'm most excited about, like one is a spy thing and it's going to be like super lo-fi CG. Like imagine like one small step, but pushed more in the direction of like Nintendo 64 graphics so that you can oh, actually cool. do it. But I, I've, I've always wanted to do something like fully animated that kind of had just like a little, flavor of like nintendo 64 without looking cheap and you know clunky but when you look at it you're like oh it's kind of like like samurai jack or like nintendo 64 but like but really cool looking i think cg is kind of able to do stuff like that so well you know mm -hmm. you can do something kind of lo-fi and make it look really polished and then on the 2d side of things i want to do something that looks like a mid-century print illustration but I want the tone of it to be like a Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant screwball comedy, like bringing up baby or the Philadelphia story where it's like fast talking dialogue, silly situations, misunderstandings of the most absurd kind. Cause I want to work with voice actors again. And I want to animate in that old, you know, mid-century style again with really exaggerated caricatured human designs that are just fun to animate. And so the the N64 spy thing and the the mid-century screwball thing are like the two that I'm most excited about. And wow. there's other ideas that might fit better into like a Patreon model, but as of today, I'm not as excited about them as those two. But those two, I still think can fit into the Patreon model really well if I approach them correctly. I'm more interested in, I mean, I'm interested in both, but the Nintendo 64 thing is interesting to me because it seems so outside of what you've currently done that it would be i'd be really interested to see how you tackle that so i'm, I'm excited yeah. about both but thank you for sharing your your <laughs> oh, you cool. heard it here well, first folks <laughs> yeah andrew's making a nintendo 64 short film no I, that that's like the starting point i think for anyone who's kind of like what does that mean or what does that look like the simplest answer i can give is like what does samurai jack look like if it's done in 3d but with like trying to maintain as much as possible the graphic integrity of yeah. that design language. Interesting, cool. But still taking advantage of what 3D can do. And that's why in my head, I'm like, that's kind of like Nintendo 64. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It was super interesting to hear your entire journey from the man himself instead of just watching it happen over all these years. <laughs> and for all the juicy, you know, candid tidbits of how you made um, the Brave Locomotive happen. And thanks for being so candid about all that. Thing. Awesome. No, thanks for thanks for having me, Terry. This was a real pleasure.
Cool. And if you're listening and you want to, you know, follow Andrew, if you're not already doing so, or you haven't seen the Brave Locomotive, what the heck? <laughs> you can check out his Instagram, which is Andrew underscore, underscore Chesworth, or you can check out his uh, YouTube, which is, which is A Chesworth. And I will include both those links in the description of this chat. And that's all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Okay, bye. The music for this podcast was composed by Willem Mendo and the graphics by Luhan Wang. I encourage you to look them up if you've enjoyed their work.